0: Humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you so so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to listen to this episode. I can promise you, you will not regret it. You might be able to hear the rain, so I'm recording this in December in England and I'm telling you now, the weather out there is not good. But today's guest will definitely warm me up i don't often look back but on the occasions that i do at all the incredible experiences i've had and the extraordinary people that i've met and that i've learned from and the wisdom that i've gained on the way i feel really blessed and chip is one of those extraordinary people and he too has had so many incredible experiences. If by any remote chance, you don't already know who Chip is. He set up a very successful boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre, which is now part of the Wyatt group. And it was a great name for his business because he is the physical manifestation of Joie de Vivre, I can tell you. And then he met a young fellow called Brian who had started this teeny weeny startup called Airbnb, who hired Chip as his strategic lead and his mentor. Chip, who is, by the way, a man who knows nothing about tech, but a lot about human beings. And together, of course, they grew Airbnb to being the most valuable hospitality company in the world. Now. You know by now that my work is all about, well, my work and my passion, actually, my mission is all about supporting leaders in large, complex organizations, helping them to build cultures built on the create framework, which are the conditions that underpin the environments in which people are the best they can be, the most productive they can be, the most efficient they can be. So those leaders and the organizations they work for can succeed. Now, I know for a fact that dear Chip could tell a million stories of how he has embedded the CREATE framework wherever he's led companies, and he is an amazing storyteller. So I can't wait to find out which three stories he chooses to tell. Anyway, before I introduce you to the frankly fabulous I just wanted to say a massive, massive thank you to all of you that send me feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see more of and how I can improve this show. Your feedback is really, really important to me. It energizes me. So you can head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Humans Leading Humans Newsletter. Get a bit of inspiration to your inbox and you can connect with us on our social channels, or go to wearebeep.com to find out how we embed the CREATE framework. Or if you really want to, and you just want to directly get in touch with me, mail me at cats at You've waited long enough. Here's Chip. My goodness, Chip Conley, I can hardly believe that you're a guest on Humans, Leading Humans. I'm so
1: chuffed. K K A C C is here in the house. Right, Uh, (laughs) pattern recognition. Yes. Um, So, dear listeners,
0: I met Chip eight years ago when I found myself in San Francisco for the first time and then on the playa for the first time. That was a 10-week experience that absolutely changed my life. And I will never forget Chip because of that. But Chip, what was your first memory? Tell the listeners, how did we
1: meet? We met at a dinner party for people who were going to be going to Burning Man. So when Kat says the playa, she's talking shorthand for uh, Burning Man the big arts spiritual festival uh, in the Nevada desert. And so we were at a dinner uh, with a lot of really interesting creative people. And we got got into some interesting conversations there. And then next thing we knew, we were both out in the dusty desert talking about utopian societies and you talking about how do you accelerate behavioral change in cities while we were in one of the most interesting cities in the world, which is what's called Black Rock City, uh, for the 10 days that that burning man is open to the public and one of the beautiful things about being a burning man is you you just think big thoughts and thinking big thoughts with you is is like an aphrodisiac
0: <laughs> and with you and with you yeah and i you know i i think that well i don't think i know that that first week of being in an environment where people are incentivized to be 100% themselves and then imagining how people have to put up with their work life. Most of the time, it would not leave my head. It burned like a smoldering thing. And that's why I am doing what I'm doing now. It's like it is crazy for people To not feel rewarded and recognized and to be able to be themselves at work
1: when we spend most of our time. Yeah, I mean, at Burning Man, we call it, we say it's the default world. So when we go back to our normal lives, it's the default world. And we sort of live in an environment where by default, we sort of fall into the institutionalization, whether that institutionalization is healthy or unhealthy, and often it's unhealthy. So you don't have to go to Burning Man to have this kind of experience. Being able to go to a place that's not habitual for you, that allows you to be reflective and imagine operating in a different way is really what is essential because otherwise we just become robots. Or zombies. I was talking to somebody
0: earlier and I was saying, actually, people go to work, they put up with it, they go home. That's not living. They're working for a living rather than working. Living and working are the same thing. We only have one precious life, right?
1: There you go. Yes.
0: So Chip, I sent you the Create Framework. Yes. And I asked you to think about the first three stories
1: that bubbled up. So what happened for you? What's your story number one? So I decided that I would come up with a story for each of the three career chapters that I've had since age 25. And it was really easy to do it that way. So the listeners will get a chance to get to know me and my career arc. So when I was 26, I started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre, based in San Francisco. And over the course of 24 years, um, we created 52 boutique hotels around California. I loved it until I hated it. It started in 1986, 1987, around then. And then fast forward to 2008 so this is many years later so this is 22 years later and i thought i'd be doing this my whole life i thought i'd be running this company that i'd started but around that time i just realized how much i didn't like it and it it went from sort of a calling to a job there was no career It, it just sort of fell from the gravity just took it to earth and I had written my third book, which was called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And I just loved that book. I loved writing it. I loved researching it. I loved going out and giving talks about it. And I realized I was really ready for a change in my life, but I felt completely stuck in this this work. At the same time, my life was falling apart. My long-term relationship was ending. My foster son was wrongfully going to prison. Um, I had a series of friends who committed suicide, including one who has the same name I have, Chip. So it was just a hard time. And then I had a flatline experience in August 19th, 2008. um, I had a broken ankle, of course, you know, broken ankle, septic leg on a strong antibiotic. And at the end of the speech on stage, I was signing books and I I went unconscious. And then they put me on the ground. And when the paramedics showed up, for the first of nine times, I I went flatline. Basically means I lost lost any heart rate. And um, so they had to paddle me back to life. And over the next couple of days, I was in the hospital. They're doing all these tests on me. And one of the things I had with me was a book that when I'm in dark times, I often take this book with me on for travel. And it's uh, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And I, it's the story of a psychologist, psycho, psychoanalyst or just a psychologist um, in Vienna who ended up in uh, a concentration camp because he was Jewish. And And his whole belief system was that meaning is the fuel of life. And so I I took that book over the course of my two days in the hospital, because I was really actually pretty depressed myself. I had been considering suicide myself because that was the only way I could feel like I could get out from under this identity. That was like, of like the, you know, being the founder and CEO of this company that was actually losing money and, you know, getting to a place where we didn't know how we could make our payroll. Long story short is, I wrote one night in the hospital, despair equals suffering minus meaning. Despair equals suffering minus meaning. And from that experience, I I came to this conclusion like, okay, if you have some Buddhist tendencies, suffering is ever present, sort of a constant. And despair and meaning are inversely proportional. The more meaning you can find in life, the less despair you feel. So this became my mantra for the next few months when, if you remember August of 2008, the world was falling apart. I mean, Lehman Brothers went, you know, was going bankrupt and, and the economy is going deep, deep into a great recession. So how do I apply this to my role as a leader and, and, and what I call an h to h leader? So people say, are you in the B2B business or the B2C business, business to business, business to consumer? I say, I'm in the h to h business, <laughs> humans to humans. So how did, I, how did I apply it? Well, I had my experience in August. Only a few people in the company knew what had happened and we kept it pretty quiet. Didn't want everybody to get freaked out. But in November, we had our annual management retreat of our top, I think it was 75 people in the company. And it was three days long and everybody was depressed because the hotel business and restaurant business and spa business, which is where we, the business we were in, was all just falling apart. And, um, and yes, we were having tra- troubles with figuring out how to make payroll. And so I was supposed to go up on stage and give a rah raw speech to start the three days together. And um, I, did, I threw that speech away because so I'm not giving that speech. And I went up on stage and on the easel, I just wrote despair equals suffering minus meaning. So it was really hard because I had to say, listen, three months ago, something happened to me and uh, we haven't told you. And I feel o- awkward that we haven't told you. And, and I wanna tell you what, I, what good has come out of it for me because what I feel right now is I see a lot of despair in the room. And that what I wanna do when we leave three days from now is start seeing some meaning. And so over the course of the next hour, or it was actually two hours, it was a, a, an hour talk and then an hour sort of workshop, I just took them through a process of saying, "How do we find meaning in our lives? How do we find it individually and then collectively?" Now, this is not what they expected to come to. <laughs> I and mean, this is like a bunch of hotel general managers, like, "How do we improve the bottom line? How do we make sure our employees are being well cared for?" Because one of our basic premises as a company, you know, if you call your company Joie de Vivre, it means joy of life, you better be pro- providing some good Joie de Vivre to your employees. And our belief system was, you know, if you if your employees are happy, your customers will be happy. And then your investors will be happy. But the investors being happy is, the, is third, you know, it's third place. You start with the employees. And so it was fascinating. And we ultimately, while I was on stage, we came up with another equation, which is anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. Anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness, which basically says, if you're in an anxious time for your company as a leader, gosh, be transparent, over-communicate. Because anxiety equals uncertainty. So create some certainty. Times powerlessness. Help people to see how they can have an impact. So, long story short, I would just say I at that time realized that for me, the CEO of a company is not the chief executive officer, they're the chief emotions officer. And the, ch- the chief emotions officer is somebody who is emotionally fluent enough to communicate what's going on for them without making everything feel like it's just a big, you know, personal growth retreat workshop, which I tend to do. I'll admit, you know, guilty as charged, but I, I wanted to make sure that people felt enough confidence that this is not chip on stage, losing it in front of everybody. This is chip on stage being human and giving me the license to be human because our emotions are contagious. And the higher you are in an organization, the more contagious those emotions are.
0: Absolutely, and that, I mean, all of those resonate so deeply with me. And it's funny because Amy, Amy Edmondson in a, mm. a previous episode, which was extraordinary, by the way, having time with any of you guys is just such an honor. She was saying certainty is a real problem because you never know, you never know. And I took it out because I can see how it's misconstrued, but the certainty I'm talking about is the certainty of knowing nothing's going to be hidden the certainty of knowing somebody's going to be consistent and isn't going to suddenly change their mind and you know one of the little sayings that i say a lot is in silence lies fear by which i mean if you're not saying something and there's trouble afoot people can feel it anyway and we're yeah. herd
1: creatures and that goes across like wildfire so it yeah, it, 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 it does I think the key is, I, I mean, I, you know, what we're talking about here is authenticity. You know, if the certainty is if you can have certainty and trust that people will be honest and authentic with you, that solves so much. It solves so much. It it, it definitely gets rid of the gossip.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's,
1: there's it's amazing how much corporate energy is expended on just basically Band-Aids, I have a little Band-Aid on my finger right now. I cut it. <laughs> ba- Band-Aids that that are masking a bigger problem. Uh, and so, yeah, there's all, you know, a lot, a lot of companies right now say, oh, we got to do wellness programs. Blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, so yes, you do. So, but what's behind, why Why is there just a, such an issue around wellness? Um, what is, what's behind that? And so some companies are doing it. But the good news is that the trend line is positive for the corporate world to wake up to this stuff hundred percent, a hundred percent.
0: And it annoys me. Well, no, it concerns me that people talk about wellness within not really quite tightly defined boxes. You know, like we'll do meditation once a day and then you're going to go back into the operating model that's going to make you feel completely miserable. Or, oh, let's do yoga. Or let's buy a table tennis. That'll be good for people. It's like, uh, well, that's... Mm -hmm. Not what it's about, what it's about, as you say, is about making sure that the people in your organization feel that you're being real. And that's really tough chip.
1: Yeah. It requires that you, as a senior leader, are willing to go through your own dark night of the soul and have the wisdom and emotional intelligence to be able to show that your self-awareness is a welcome map for other people to seek their own self-awareness. So yeah. And whenever that sound happens, it means that was a good idea.
0: That was. <laughs> <laughs> I turned that off. I don't know how that happened. God gotcha. damn. No,
1: okay. no
0: I loved your first story. I want to know more about how you ran Joie de vivre. Give me a couple of hints about what you learned in that company about how to create a community of people who feel cared for.
1: Well, I think, you know, in the early days of Joie de Vivre, we, we had a head of culture, a head of HR and culture. And I think what I realized over time is we have to democratize culture. Um, ultimately, we had cultural ambassadors for each of our hotels and restaurants and spas. and they, they were people who had a normal job, but they were not like the general manager of the property. They had a normal job, and they would do this on the side. And it was a way for us to help people in the company feel like it wasn't just the senior executives who decided where our philanthropy would go as a company, how we would give back to the community. It wasn't just the senior executives who would figure out what kind of cultural events, what kind of things we would do each year to make the, the culture of the company feel quite unique and idiosyncratic. Um, so I would just say that you know one of my key lessons, and I, and I did write, write about this in my book, Peak, was just the idea of how do we democratize culture such that everybody feels like their fingerprints are on it. And thank God I learned that along the way because it allowed me to take it to my next place that I went to work, which I'll talk about when you're ready. And I'm just going to
0: stop for a second. Vint Cerf, when I interviewed him, talked about this in a different way. He talked about everybody needs to feel they own a brick of the cathedral. Mm. And one of the other things I just wanted to say before we move on is I had the most hilarious conversation with a friend of mine who's actually a wellness coach and we talked about you know organizational transformation and eventually i said so what we need to do is scrap hr and i didn't mean scrap hr isabel naidu who was another guest who is incredible you know so she says things like how you know how big is your team and she says well the whole company because my job is to make sure that everybody feels that they're looking after each other yeah, um yeah. anyway so i just wanted to say your story number 2 chip
1: so you know, I, I ultimately, thank God for my own sanity, I, I I gave that talk to the team in November 2008, and then by June 2010, I'd sold the company, and I needed to. I, I really needed to move on. You, you don't want to be staying in a in a role as the most senior leader in the company when you don't want to be there anymore. People can feel it. That's the back to the authenticity piece. So I moved on and I got a call from a guy named Brian Chesky. Now, this was nine years ago. Uh, there was this tiny little startup in San Francisco uh, named Airbnb. I didn't really know much about it, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, that sounds like a stupid idea. People haven't staying in each other's homes. Like, it's like
0: <laughs> it's It'll like, never take off
1: couch surfing, like, I mean, what is like, this, this is not going to work. So Brian asked if he could Uber over to my house. And I didn't know what Uber was at that time, nine years ago. And I said, you're going to do what? (laughs) So he Ubered over to my house and we spent an afternoon together. And next thing I knew, I had joined Airbnb as the head of global hospitality and strategy and Brian Chesky, co-founder and CEO, his, his mentor. So Brian was 21 years younger than me. I reported to him. And I was his mentor. That was a unique situation because, well, first of all, you know, a lot more and more of us are actually starting to uh, report to people younger than us. In the U.S., 40% of the U.S. uh, reports to someone younger than them. And if you're 55 years old, 70%. And by the year 2025, the majority of us will be reporting to uh, younger bosses in the U.S. So... My experience there, they first started calling me the modern elder because I was as curious as I was wise. And I wasn't sure I liked that, but I was twice the age of the average employee in the company. My lesson there was the following. They were a rocket ship. They were growing fast. And so part of my job was to help them steer the rocket ship and make sure that they didn't you know, go off in way too many other directions and so I really helped them to run the company with, uh, you know, and, leadership, and really run the leadership team too. I was in charge of our work, our offsites with our senior leadership team, et cetera. The thing that I actually was fascinated there because my company Joie de Vie was a bricks and mortar company and it grew fast, but it didn't grow anything like a tech company. Airbnb is a tech company. And so there is a natural challenge in companies that grow really fast And it's what I call the challenge between scale and soul. So often in a startup environment, a company is like, oh, it's really soulful. Everybody knows each other. Everybody understands the core values. We all feel like we've got, you know, those, there's our own brick in the cathedral. And then you start doubling how many, you know, you have 50 employees and you have 100 employees and then you have 200 employees. And every year or every six months, you're doubling your number of employees and People don't feel like they have bricks anymore <laughs> or they want to throw the bricks. And there's an element of like in the process of scaling, you lose the soul of the company. So this is something I talked a lot with Joe Gabbia about one of the other co-founders. And so one of the things that I would just say was a, a leadership practice that I helped to institute there that I had done at Joao but I saw, wow, it's even more necessary at Airbnb because of the growth is the following. So we had our, our senior leadership team was like 10 or 12 of us. And we would just, you know, once a week have a two hour meeting. We would take the last 10 or 15 minutes of every week's meeting uh, between us to have us, each of us, raise our hand and say, I want to recognize the following person. And it's a line level person in the company. And I want to recognize them for what they did. And here's what they did. You tell a short story. And then someone else on the leadership team would say, I will go say thank you to, to Sally, who did that amazing, you know, beyond the call of duty thing for an Airbnb host. So in essence, we created a a recognition moment every week of the senior leaders. And then we cascaded that out so that one of the senior leaders, usually from a different department, not the department where Sally was working, would go and say thank you to Sally. I mean, either in person or by email or phone, but it had to be something that felt very personalized. And she would know that, oh my gosh, I was just talked about by the founders and the senior leadership team. Well, this created a culture of recognition. And that culture of recognition, then we saw this is working because what we could see was that people felt that sense of love. They felt the sense of soul. They felt that sense of, okay, we're not just this rocket ship that's just scaling big. We all, there's also some soul in this company and people are not just catching me doing something wrong. They're catching me doing something right. Long story short is that's something we cascaded out to um, a variety of our offices around the world, Airbnb offices, because you can do it in any organization. You know, it, it, just doing having a practice of talking about recognition and then going out and expressing the gratitude around that is something that any organization can do. It doesn't cost you a dime.
0: I love that. That's ultimately common sense. And it's something that Dan was talking about um, a couple of weeks ago, that actually you can give people whacking great salaries and that's good but people aren't going to stay for whacking great salaries people will stay for people sending them a text or coming in and saying oh my god you're amazing i love that
1: people join a company and they leave their boss um and so it's you know the most important thing we can do is to help people to feel the allegiance and support of everybody around them Another question I I love to ask my direct reports whenever I have direct reports in the company is, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at, let's say Airbnb? It's a great question because how can I support you? Says, I'm here to support you. I'm not here to have you fail. A lot of times people think that their boss wants them to fail, like, you know, that's not easy for the boss. Um, How can I support you to do the best work of your life? So I want you to stretch. I want you to tell me what you need, because that's the other thing It helps build agency in the people to say, oh, God, no one's ever told me, no boss has ever told me that I can make a list of the things I need to do the best work of my life here. Okay, let me start working on that. And it's, it's, a, it's a really nice way to sort of help a company see that everybody should have agency. Everybody should have a voice. It's not just about the senior leaders making all the decisions for us. Because if they succeed,
0: you succeed better <laughs> true,
1: than you. True. Yes.
0: I love that. I love that. That's a really pragmatic thing that Chip just said there, listeners, that anyone in any size company can do. And if you're not doing it, you're stupid. Story number three, Chip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, stupid's not, you know, there's no S and create. <laughs> uh, stupid, stupidity. Uh, so, so far we've got we've got courage and transparency for the first uh, example. The second example, recognition and appreciation. This third example is going to be co-creation, community, and empowerment. So I spent four years full-time at Airbnb and then another four years as a strategic advisor. So eight years really helping that company become the world's most valuable hospitality company. What, what a fan, fascinating experience. Then because I had had that experience, I decided to write my fifth book, which is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Um, And the subtitle, The Making of a Modern Elder, spoke to the fact that that's what they called me there, the modern elder. Well, while I was writing that book, I had uh, down in Mexico, in Baja, at a beachfront uh, home I have, I had this weird epiphany where I just said, why is it that we don't have a school for modern elders, a place where people in midlife can reimagine the second half of their adult life and repurpose themselves and Figure out how to go through a transition, whether the transition is their career or a divorce, or empty nesting kids or parents passing away. I mean, there's lots of or menopause, you know, for women and andropause for men. There's a lot of transitions in midlife. And so, long story short, is I created something called the Modern Elder Academy, um, and its first campus is in uh, Mexico, uh, in Baja California Sur, an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. So. Um, We've had 2,000 alumni now from 28 countries who've come there. Well, great idea, except during COVID, having a personal growth retreat center that's dedicated to people average age 54, so a slightly older population, flying to you know, a developing country like Mexico during COVID. like Who the hell is going to do that? So of course, just like everybody else who's sensible, uh, we had to shut down um, our operation in mid March of 2020. So this example is gonna is one that really speaks to okay, how do we democratize innovation in an organization? And so I felt like I was supposed to be the hero. I was supposed to come up with all the solutions. I was also the exclusive investor in this project. So it's like if if we're if we're closed, you know, I'm the one writing the check. So The truth is often when you're in the position where you feel the sense of urgency and the sense of performance anxiety around finding solutions, this is not when you're going to be your most creative. And so I was lucky enough to have my two co-founders both step up and start getting really creative about a variety of things we needed to do to pivot the organization. Um, And so within six months after, six and a half months after we shut, we reopened not with workshops um we are just now reopening for workshops because it felt way too intimate and you know in, workshops generally are indoors and it was like didn't feel good so we had we we created something called sabbatical sessions which is people coming and doing like a digital nomad experience where we have light programming all outdoors but you can just do it yourself you can choose whatever you wanted to do everything was optional as opposed to going through a very structured week-long workshop and that was hugely successful and then we created mea online which is um, something I was resisting, which is a very successful program that helps people to, um, in an eight-week course, to get connected to other people around transitions in their life and go through all the content we have there. And then we created um, a subscription service to our our alumni. And then we decided we were going to go to the United States and open up our first campus in the US. We bought a 2,600-acre ranch outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico to create what will be in 2023, our second location and our first US regenerative community, which is a residential community that is sort of like the next alternative to a retirement community because no one wants to live in a retirement community anymore. And they wanna live in a regenerative community with a regenerative farm and regenerative principles. So all of that happened due to our pandemic pivot. And all of that happened because we really took it into account, how do we empower our key leaders to come up with ideas to co-create? And then how do we go out to our community, all of these alumni who love what we've been doing and ask them how they can be helpful. And so for example, we even gave them an opportunity to donate to our employees fund because we, we employed all of our employees during COVID even though we were shut down, you know, yeah. everybody, everybody, got, everybody got their paycheck. And so, Our guests, our students, the people who had come for a week's program gave us $300,000 as a collective group, which helped us to fund a lot of our losses in 2020 because they knew the bulk of that was going to our staff and they love the staff. So we went out to our community and said, can you help us?
0: That must have been a difficult decision because it's never easy, is it, to go out and ask, especially clients, well, essentially, you know, they're your customers.
1: You want to put on the happy face and say everything's fine. Of course. And um, but you know, COVID was so so serious that it allowed us to. Again, I think you know maybe the theme here is authenticity across all three of these. Is you know how how do we go authentically to our community and say we're in a time of need, uh, we're going to get to the other side of this, but you know we could use your help. And in the meantime, we kept them aware of all the creative juices that were flowing and all the new things we were going to do. And so they felt, and, and, and in some cases, they were the ones who actually said, hey, you should do this. You should go to Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's, you know, you know as you're looking in the US, that's the place you guys should go. It's like, okay, thank you. And like, guess what? When we went to Santa Fe, the handful of people who said that, like, oh, wow, I feel like you did this because I told you to. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not, not a bad feeling, but for them. Um, and so long story short is, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human. It doesn't show up on a balance sheet, doesn't show up on an income statement. You know, there's, there's no line item that says employee culture. So there's, there's a lot to be said for recognizing that the operating system that defines how do you address humans is psychology and good old common sense humanity.
0: Common sense. Chip, I was just thinking, dear listeners, how many of you would be brave enough to reach out to your customers and ask them how you could do things better and and why would that make you feel uncomfortable because actually if people people like to give they like to give advice they like to feel they're part of a community so that's brilliant i love that chip so before we leave it is now customary for you to decide what would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading
1: Humans? I'm in the h to h business.
0: <laughs> I'm in the h to h business. Did I yeah. steal this off you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Chip Conley, thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for dedicating your time, because I know that you're kind of busy. I am. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's it's great to see you. Thank thanks for inviting me on and uh thank you for having this message in the world.
0: Oh lovely chip. What a wonderful wise man you are. So what leapt out at me, dear listeners, oh god, I don't know where to start really. Um, The wonderful Emily Chang talked about the importance of stepping out of your day-to-day life, of providing intentional space where people can think, where you can look at your life through a new lens. How incredible that story that for Chip, that one of those experiences was flatlining. It took for him to flatline to see that just because it's the way you do things, does not mean it's the right way. And I absolutely loved the story about Airbnb, the power of the collision between high tech and high touch wisdom, the power between uh, different minds and different levels of experiences and how that can lead you to success, the power of diversity of age and thought and experience. And I guess he chose it as his title, we are, dear people, whether you've realized it or not, we are all in the H2H business. And authenticity is not always easy. Being open can be uncomfortable, but it's always powerful. Connecting at a human level is not always easy, but it does reap rewards. And one thing that really stuck with me, emotions are contagious. And the higher up you are, the more contagious they are. And back to the community part, success comes from cultures where people feel rewarded and recognized and listened to when they feel part of a community. And I guess another thing just before uh, I sign off for for this from this phenomenal episode, Don't try and shift your culture from the top. Democratize your culture. One of my previous guests, Isabel Naidu at FIS has done an astounding job of doing exactly this, democratizing culture, building culture with people. And absolutely finally, manifest the behaviors that you want to see. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. And if you are a senior leader and if you uh, you need the know-how and the wisdom and the networks to succeed, go over and join up to their tribe. I 100% recommend it. Massive, massive thanks. To the fantastic superterranean for the magical sting of stings go to we are beep to find more about the create framework and how we support companies by building cultures of connection and collaboration to unlock the problem-solving potential of your humans If you loved this episode, and I think you probably did, pass it on to any friends and colleagues you think might need a shot of inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe, the links are in the notes. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human.